Phil Riken, uh, one of the commentaries uh, that I read on this little passage here, he opens up his commentary uh, as he reflects on what Jesus is addressing here in this passage by saying that the biggest danger uh, to the Christian church in the 21st century is not a, a threat from um, secular hostility to biblical truth. It's not the threat from the progressive uh, cultural thinking of the day. It's not the threat of, of the growth of, of competing false religions such as Islam or Buddhism or the J-dubs or whoever is out there. While secular culture and alternative religious views share the world stage uh, with Christianity based on what Jesus consistently addresses in the gospel and based on what Jesus goes after ferociously in this passage, the most serious threat to the gospel, the most serious threat uh, to, to the message of Jesus may indeed lie in people who are uh, theologically informed, uh, religiously active, morally conservative, at least in voice, at least in stance, but whose hearts are actually far from God. People who are very religious, have very strong ethical stances, but have no actual, personal, intimate relationship with God. It's, it's all academic. It's, it's, it's all contractual. It's, it's all for show. In a way, it's kind of all about them. Nothing is more toxic. Nothing is more poisonous and more distorting to the witness of the Christian message than, than what this sums up as spiritual hypocrisy. Nothing of deserving of more strong rebuke from Jesus as we see today in our passage than a life that is all external effort with no internal love for God. A life that is more concerned with outward appearances and neglecting inward godliness and grace. Well, the two must coexist. There must be internal intimacy with God that drives external practice. Intimacy alone or, or just all good, loving feelings alone um, can, can distort as much as uh, legalism, uh, doctrine, just those kind of things can distort. Jesus says there's got to be a balance between the two. The absence of one leads to liberalism, which is what I was just trying to explain then. Anything goes, love without ethics. Or as is the case in this passage, uh, can lead to an imbalance can lead to legalism, doctrinal cruelty, theological distortion, and social oppression. What we would call spiritual hypocrisy, or sorry, what Jesus would call spiritual hypocrisy. And the reason that Phil Riken starts like this, the reason that he says it's Jesus' biggest concern, and the reason that other commentators say that this is one of Jesus' biggest concerns, is because we find Jesus just constantly addressing this spiritual hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Their legalism that they have with, with a lack of love for those the law seeks to protect. So it's okay to be, uh, have legalistic understandings, but if it lacks love, it's out of whack. Their ritual duty that they perform, it lacks intimacy uh, for the one from where these rituals come from, from where these laws come from. In Matthew 23, Jesus warns against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. 
Jesus is constantly uh, throughout the, the Gospels uh, shaking the conscience of the Pharisees. Uh, you know, you, you, like you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. And here in this passage, it's like there's three woes directed straight at the Pharisees' religious approach. Uh, and next week, we'll see three woes that are directed at the lawyers. But I'm leaving the lawyers alone. My dad's a lawyer, so I thought I'd better not pick on them. going to leave that to Sean. Let him go, go for it. Now, Jesus' concern here around spiritual hypocrisy is justified. He can see how this hypocrisy distorts a picture of God and how this distortion of a picture of God kind of becomes the reason why people don't see God accurately, why they don't perceive God for who he is. It's another accusation that Jesus has against the Pharisees. Well, people make the same observations of religious people of our day, but not to shake a person's conscience or to, or to get them to interrogate the motives of their hearts. More likely when people make these accusations these days of hypocrisy, it's to safeguard against their own uh, need to interrogate their hearts. If they can point at all the reasons in other people why they should stay away from Jesus, then they can feel justified in their lack of interest, in their lack of approach. They are not so concerned with the misrepresentation of God that his spiritual hypocrisy uh, creates as Jesus was, but rather it gives them plausible deniability. And it's very sad and tragic when that plausible deniability uh, towards God, towards his love comes from or is helped by practicing Christians, confessing Christians, their lives don't match up with what is true and real about God. All that being said, it seems odd uh, in this passage that Jesus would actually receive a dinner invite from uh, one of these Pharisees. And it's kind of like mid-sentence. Luke's, Luke says uh, in verse 33, while Jesus was speaking. And, and what Jesus has been doing is outlining how the religious leaders have failed. They themselves have failed to respond appropriately to Jesus. How the light in them is actually darkness. How they reason away the evidence for who Jesus is. Jesus is. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Now, maybe they just wanted Jesus out of the public eye. You know, he, he, he's out there talking and they want him into a more controlled public setting. This is me speculating. It's not there in the text. But given the form of the religious leaders in this, this is probably yet another attempt to try and work out if they can catch Jesus doing or saying something that they could use against him to say, aha, you see, this guy's not with us. Like they've had a rip at this before, like when they tried to catch Jesus out for healing on the Sabbath day, or when they tried to catch him out for, for forgiving a woman caught in adultery, or when they caught, tried to catch Jesus out around taxation questions. Like this plan, this method, it's worked really well for them so far. Let's have another crack at it. That's our joke. Um, just concerned about the static deadness of the people out there. Right now, right out of the gate in this passage, uh, we see that Jesus is being watched. Every action, every word just monitored. The Pharisee was astonished to see. 
Like he caught Jesus out. He was watching him and then he saw something that he was just like, you got to be kidding me. He was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, this word astonished here uh, can be translated marveled and all that sort of stuff. But, but given Jesus' response, it seems to convey alarm and just complete disbelief and contempt that Jesus has not washed his hands. Now, we've all kind of received a clip from our mum or our dad, sometimes a chair to the back of the head, depends what kind of hair she grew up in, for not washing our hands uh, before we eat. You know, you kind of come in, you just stick your hands in the box of chips that everybody else has got to eat out of. And your mum's like, no, not cool. That's like double dipping. Don't do it. But hygiene and basic manners are not the offence here. I'm sure Jesus has listened to his mum and he washes his hands. He knows, you know, I've been out there, you know, curing lepers. I better wash my hands before I eat kind of thing. He's all good with that. But what Jesus has not done is observed a more ritual washing of the hands that has developed over centuries by the Pharisees. A practice that has uh, religious significance uh, to it, not, not just or, or even hygiene concerns. Now, this kind of washing, uh, such washing, is actually described in the Old Testament. It's described in places like Genesis 18 and Judges 19, but it's not prescribed by the law. Like it, There's descriptions of it, but there's no prescription for it. But what is prescribed in the law is washing for ritual consecration such as when someone is coming into the presence of God and washing for ritual cleansing, which is often connected to the, to the loss of life or, or, or disease. You have come into contact with something that has died or something that is infectious or, or loss of potential of, of life, as is the case with, we read about contact with semen and, and menstrual blood. And we read that kind of stuff and we're like, really? That's, that's just weird, it's strange, it's kind of awkward. Try putting it in a sermon. But God gave these things to his people as visual aids, as living reminders that you don't approach God casually or without examining your life, uh, the condition of your heart. Washing for ritual conse- consecration helped you just press pause and remind yourself of the holiness of God and your sinfulness and the need to just to take a moment to acknowledge the great difference there and the grace and the concession involved in the two things coming together and you reflect and you acknowledge while you wash. And washing for ritual cleansing is another visual aid, a living reminder of the sacredness of life. Death is not meant to be a part of our experience. It's a part of the curse. It's the ultimate evil. Contact with it is time to pause and time to reflect. Washing for ritual cleansing reminds us of the seriousness of sin, reminds us of that ends life. It's there to remind us of the sacredness of life and, and there to remind us too of the potential to create life, the potential that we have to create life. And in this kind of sense, reminds us of the sacredness of sex. The laws were given to help people, to aid them in reminding them of the holiness of God, the sacredness of life and the seriousness of sin. 
And they were there to help the heart have conversations and examination around these things. It's not merely about hygiene. The law, God's law, as odd as it is in some spots, is all about relationships. But because the Pharisees had lost sight of the relational aspect of the law and focused on the ritual aspect... This is why Jesus is always calling them blind guides. Uh, Read about in Luke 6, Matthew 15. It's why Jesus tells them that the light in them is actually darkness. It's why you guys can take the law and it's darkness in you and someone else can take it and it's light. We looked at that last week. They had taken even non-prescriptive washing. Uh, not stuff that's part of the law, and they turned it into a performance sport, into a uh, religious profession, where the more detailed you were, the more extreme you were, the greater the prestige you kind of had, the better your name, the closer to God you were perceived to be. Like cleansliness is literally next to godliness for this crew. So this Pharisee isn't taking offense over Jesus' failure to observe the law, He is taking offense that Jesus doesn't align himself with them and and perpetuate and cherish their man-made traditions, their opinions that they have developed from, from what they've observed of practices in the Old Testament. And in a way, there's kind of a, a little lesson here for us that we also need to learn, and that is to tell the difference between a law of God or something that Jesus has commanded over our lives and our own actual personal preferences. Like we can all have opinions and we can all feel that they are good and they can even have spiritual reasons behind them. Like you can have an opinion on uh, what political party to vote for. You can even have an opinion about vaccines. You can have an opinion about music style, what school to send your kids to. But someone else may have a different one. It's discerning whether or not opinions are just opinions and not commands, directives like Love God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor. That is a definite command. We need to be careful that we don't confuse these things, that we don't cherish opinion like they're commands of God to justify our offense at someone else, having, not having the same opinion as our actions. Like God is actually offended that you didn't vote for the Christian Democrat Party. God, you know, how could somebody play sport on a Sunday? Taking offense at things like this, as our, as, our, as, our, as our pharisaical friend has, is not signs of holiness. Often, it's actually a sign of immaturity, lack of intimacy with God, and even hypocrisy, as is the case here in, ch- in chapter 11. This is the condition that Jesus is exposing in the Pharisee. Spiritual hypocrisy, a lack of relational intimacy with God. What Jesus saw in the Pharisees' obsessions with external practice was everything that is wrong with religion. It fails to transform and warm the heart with affection for God. There's a theological disconnect which leads to doctrinal cruelty and social oppression. And when you think about it, is that not the sole historic failure of the church? Think about that. Every time somebody says, oh, you know, the church is responsible for more death in the world than anything else, what has happened? 
hearts that are not actually intimate with God. They have theological knowledge. They've got some kind of, you know, ethical grid. But spiritual hypocrisy drives these kinds of things. And Jesus is calling it out and saying this hypocrisy, this lack of intimacy with God is what leads to greed, is what leads to wickedness, is what leads to Inquisition, you know, Spanish inquisitions and all kinds of crazy, the neglect of justice, these things. It's a serious heart condition and that's why Jesus goes at it so hard time and time again. And in this passage, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees, woe. Jesus responds by giving a spiritual analyst of the hypocritical state of this Pharisee's heart with some specific criticisms. And we can use these criticisms, if you like, as diagnostic tools as we examine our own hearts for symptoms of spiritual hypocrisy that that can rest in us. Firstly, spiritual hypocrisy has a hold on me when I am more concerned with the outward appearance than inward godliness. Verse 39, and the Lord said to him, and Luke underlines Jesus' authority to talk. He says, he doesn't say, and Jesus, he says, and the Lord, Kiros, and the Lord spoke to him. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus says that their focus, their obsession on external rituals, ceremony with total disregard towards their motives and some of, their, uh, of the oppressive outcomes of, of their actions is akin to merely washing the outside of their cups and dishes while leaving the inside unclean. Po- uh, pious hands covering up poisonous hearts full of greed and wickedness Foolishness to think that you can hide this. Foolishness to think you can fool God by looking clean on the outside while being all messed up on the inside. It's a living picture of totally missing the point. A living demonstration that they had failed to appreciate that the God that they so religiously wish to prove to the world that they are approved by God does not merely examine hands but he also looks at the heart. You can't hide a wicked heart behind pious activity, not from God and ultimately not from people over the journey. This is Jesus saying you can't compartmentalize life. This is Jesus affirming the creation design that humans are body and soul as a unit. These are not separate things. Your inner world must align with your outer world. God made both to display his glory, to live out relationship with him. And when you disconnect one from the other, there's spiritual hypocrisy that can take place, spiritual blindness, uh, foolishness to think that you can live like that. It's what our modern culture is actually trying to wipe away. And say that you can hold something internally and not have to live that out. It's okay to be completely inconsistent. Your Christian spirituality should not find any expression or voice or action in the marketplace. The great irony here is that secular reasoning 
endures no such censorship. It's even they even legislate adhering to secular reason and their progressive ideas. That's not Jesus' issue here. His issue is with religious practice that tries to hide lack of intimacy, of love for God and love for God, and excuse lack of justice or neglecting justice because look at the good things I did on Sunday at church. Don't you lads know? that the God who made the outside also made the inside. The soul is just as important as the body, the heart just as crucial as the hands. You Pharisees, you make such a big show of your religious practice. And that's something that Mark's account of these conversation details. But as Mark's account also points out, Jesus says, you you are like hypocrites. You're like the hypocrites that Isaiah prophesied about when he said in Isaiah 29, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God, and you are holding on to human traditions. There's a deadly disconnect between what your heart understands and accepts and promotes as godliness and what God actually desires in that space. And we need to ask ourselves a question. Are we more invested, invested in keeping up appearances or being perfectly comfortable with neglecting what's going on inside of our hearts that allows us to neglect mercy, to neglect justice, to neglect the actual things that God is concerned about in the world, using the former religious piety, turning up at church, tithing, using these things as camouflage and excuses to not have to lift a finger about the other things. Like, are we like that? Because if we are, spiritual hypocrisy. Jesus says, give alms. Give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. Alms is the act of giving money and food to the poor uh, to relieve their, their destitute condition. It's an attitude, an approach, an act of kindness for fellow humans. It's a practice, an approach that reflects God's desire for mercy and justice towards others. Uh, is, this, is, this like the, is this how your heart is? Is your heart affected by this? Are your actions of your heart like elms? Are they concerned for God's mercy and justice? Or are they just concerned with, with your own approval and how you look? Is your heart governed by greed and selfish ambition over a spirit of generosity toward the poor? How wicked. How spiritually unclean to hide a greedy heart behind religious adherence. Like, can you imagine this dude as Jesus is rolling this out? An alms-based heart, not a performance-based heart, actually cures spiritual hypocrisy. Well, Jesus he just presses his sting. He, he pushes on with his stinging indictment like a lawyer going after a conviction. Exhibit A, he now kind of slams down on the table. And this is something that is actually found in the law, in the commands. And this is tithing. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done. Yeah, you should have been tithing, absolutely. But not without neglect. With, while neglecting these other things. You know, 
Spiritual hypocrisy has a hold of you when you are more concerned about your only your own tiny rules than about the big things that matter to God. And this is Jesus kind of repeating himself, doubling down on the practices of the Pharisees. But even as he exposes their spiritual hypocrisy, Jesus gives scope, if you like, for change, for repentance. A woe is not the pronouncement of you know, ultimate judgment, but rather deep sorrow, sadness at this current condition. If this condition remains, yeah, yeah, judgment is, is there at the end of the road. And this is, this is kind of Jesus going like, man, change. Well, we could do with this at times, taking the leaf out of Jesus' approach to sin in other people's lives. He, he grieves it. His, his concern, uh, the way he, he speaks about correction, is always, it always offers redemption. It always offers uh, grace, the ability to change. How nice if we approached people like that. The Pharisees, the issue is the Pharisees are majoring on the minor while minoring on the majors. If you've ever wondered what Jesus thinks about Old Testament laws around tithing, here it is. Jesus does not make them redundant, but rather uses them as a rule, a guideline uh, for us to stop and reflect about the condition of our heart towards generosity. Tithing was the practice of giving a tenth of your gross income, and it had two main concerns. One, it was used, uh, a tithe went to being used to connect God's people with God in worship. So it supported the ministry of the temple. It supports the ministry of the church. And two, it was used to connect God's people with the needs of the world. It went towards the destitute, the poor, towards those who couldn't look after themselves. So, so tithing is just kind of like this baseline evidence, this approach of your love for God, that you would see his people in relationship with him and able to worship him accurately and appropriately and your love for his mercy and his justice to be executed in the world. But the Pharisees had made an art of being exact in their tithes to the point where they even, even their garden herbs were micromanaged to comply with this particular command. Again, this is an exercise in missing the point, missing the heart of the law. It revealed that they were more impressed with their ability to be mathematical correct in their giving, than open-handed in their generosity, in their approach to tithing. Like, just grab a plant and and, and bring it, rather than going, oh my goodness, no, ten leaves, I'll just take one. There was no joy in their giving because there was no connection in their hearts with God's heart for how the law of tithing was supposed to be reflected upon and used and appropriated. They did not love God. They, they loved their performance of his laws. They did not love their neighbors by doing justice. They did not love their neighbors because they neglected their needs but by being stingy with their wealth, with their resources. This is the heart of spiritual hypocrisy, keeping the letter of the law in one or two little minor areas of obedience while at the same time neglecting the big things that matter to God. Yes, tithing matters, but its role is to have your heart reflect on what's matter. Like, why, why, why am I giving this money again? Ah, oh, yeah, that's right. 
to God's people can be edified so a world can come into contact with the love and the mercy and the justice of God. But God does not need your stingy little plant, your herb. But what he does want is a heart for the world expressed and, and an attitude towards the needs of the world that reflects his. If you can open your wallet without opening your heart, spiritual hypocrisy. If you calculate what it will cost to be merciful, if you prioritize what you're going to miss out on uh, over delivering justice for the poor, check your heart for spiritual hypocrisy. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver because it reflects his heart. Like he cheerfully gave you the whole entire world and just said, ah, oh, you know, 10% of what you got back. It's not a reckless giver. There's no point to becoming someone who actually needs the, the aid, but this is someone who loves to earn their money because they can release it in a way that matches God's heart for the world, to connect his people with him in worship and to connect his people in action with the needs of the world. How are we? How is our approach to giving, to being generous? Are we, are we like the Pharisees? We, we, we major on being minor? Or are we in line with God's radical generosity, his love of mercy, and his love of justice, and, and releasing our stuff towards that? I was thinking, man, this is not much fun, waiting our way through this message this morning. But Jesus is well aware that the greatest danger to the, to, to the witness of his name in the world is from people who claim his name and lack his heart. And so he presses on with this. And if we feel uncomfortable kind of working our way through that, spare a thought for this poor old Pharisee who just kind of said, hey, barbecue at my place and invited Jesus. Woe to you, Pharisees. If you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace, you, you know spiritual hypocrisy has a grip on your heart when you crave uh, from people to recognize your spiritual accomplishments. When, when there's a craving to be recognized, your spiritual accomplishments, like, great sermon, Mason. Yeah, you're awesome. Huh? That kind of thing. If ever there was a lane that the Pharisees lived in, it was this one. They loved being made much of. And that was seen by their being invited to sit in, in the best seats in the synagogue, by getting acknowledged as they walk through the marketplace, you know, stopping for selfies and autographs, uh, getting courtside seats to the basketball handed to them, being seen with all the latest social influences. They're in it for the recognition. They're in it for the perks is what Jesus is saying. They're not in it for how they can recognize the needs in others and how they can bring perks into the lives of others. Well, we may not have the same degree of superficiality uh, to our Christian life as the Pharisees are being described here. But how do, how do we roll when we don't get recognized or noticed for the way we serve at church? Do we get resentful? Do we head off to another church where we can have another go at getting attention? Do we get despondent? that our spiritual endeavors get overlooked? Is our activity for God more important than our actual relationship with God? Jesus rolls in a totally different lane. In fact, his whole life, which is far more spectacular than my life will ever be, far more spectacular than the Pharisees' life will ever be, is one of selfless service. It takes comfort in the fact 
that God delights in his ministry. And this is the heartbeat. This is the motivation or should be the motivation of your identity, of your spiritual security. Your soul rests in the knowledge that as a child of God, God delights in you. Deep comfort there. You don't need to prove yourself across any lines there. You're already accepted. You're already part of the family. What you do after that is just an expression of gratitude. Why do we serve? Is it for a pat on the back at the AGM? Or is it because we have first been served by Jesus? So our lives then, out of gratitude, reflect that grace, his selflessness towards us. And no doubt, I'm sure, as we reflect on this, Christ's work on the cross shapes us in this area. What it actually looks like to have a truly spiritual life pinned up for the world to see. Well, Jesus finally gets to the main point of his, of his argument here to, to this Pharisee, and it is devastatingly pointed. And it is the sum of spiritual hypocrisy. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This whole conversation kicked off because the Pharisee was astonished. He took offense that Jesus did not ceremonially wash his hands. And for Pharisees, this was evidence that Jesus was this reckless unit with no regard for their traditions, which they gained acceptance through, which they gained credit through and approval. But more than that, this Pharisee would hold a deep concern that someone like Jesus, someone like Jesus who, who, who hangs out with the kind of people that Jesus hangs out with is certainly unclean. And now that uncleanness is about to defile all his food, his whole entire table. It's an astonishing concern given that Jesus' whole public ministry has been one of making unclean things clean. Like he cures leprosy. He gets rid of uh, infections and demons. He makes unclean clean. Everything that touches him becomes clean. That's what happens. Jesus flips this concern of the Pharisee right on on its head when he calls the Pharisee an unmarked grave. This is Jesus' way of saying the greatest danger to people's spiritual health is actually you, not me. People whose lives... uh, Uh, lived in spiritual hypocrisy, are like unmarked graves. Now, the Jews used to whitewash their tombs and their gravestones to warn people of their existence so that you didn't inadvertently come into contact uh, with them, walk over them, like come into contact with a dead uh, person and make yourself ceremonially unclean. This is Jesus saying to the Pharisee, I am not the threat here. You and your spiritual hypocrisy are the issue. And anyone who walks in your way or follows your teaching is going to end up with dead heart towards God and dead hearts towards their brothers and sisters and their neighbors. Jesus is not the threat to people's spiritual conditions. He is the one who actually makes people right with God. The greatest danger in the way of people seeing Jesus is followers whose lives are marked with spiritual hypocrisy. When your soul 
is full of spiritual hypocrisy. It's like an unmarked grave. It's only capable of corrupting, having a corrupting, distorting influence on people's lives. And this is why Jesus goes so hard at it. And this is why we need to take so much time to reflect, to self-examine, to make sure that this isn't in us. We can do all the right religious things for a time, but ultimately our lives impart what is in our hearts, like it's coming out. And people will eventually see the artificiality, the facade, the elitism, the anger, the hostility, the hatred, the fear, the the suspicion, the sourness of a heart that doesn't actually have any intimacy with God. It's, It's just all rigorous law and duty. We leave our spiritual fingerprints on each other's souls, either as Jesus would, in love of God and concern for our neighbor, or as the Pharisees do, spiritual hypocrisy and unbelief. For Jesus is the elms, the generosity of God to the hypocritical heart. He alone can transform a dead heart to life. He alone can transform ritual to relationship. He alone can take a soul from an unmarked grave to a spring of life. And our whole heartbeat of the last few weeks has been, have you actually encountered Jesus? Do you actually know the Jesus who's presented in the scriptures? Have you actually taken time, like Andy spoke about a couple of weeks ago, to actually have conversations about this and talk about this? Is this what is alms to your soul? Or are you just religious duty and practice? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. That you say woe to us. That you let us know that certain ways of living lead to death. Lead to souls that are like unmarked graves that eventually no one will ever stand around and have anything to do with. And that you give us Jesus as, a, as both a, uh, an example and also the effective means of having the soul transformed. Our prayer here uh, at Freeway more and more is that we would know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus in living relational intimacy, that would have symptoms of making him known to to others around us in real ways. That our witness to the world would not be spiritual hypocrisy, but rather would be spiritual intimacy, truth and accuracy of God. We thank you that we, we don't have to come up with this, that it's, that it's you and us that allows this to take place. It's not our, our works. There's symptoms of grace in our lives. And the more and more that we push into you and, and, and surrender our lives to you, the more and more these things just become natural expressions uh, of who we are. We give you thanks this morning for your grace to us in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.